We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we're at the heart of the letter where Paul will tell us some things that if we understand what he says to us, will dramatically impact our understanding of the cross, help us to understand more clearly why Christ did what he did. I think make it, some things make a little more sense. What we find, Jews in Paul's day believed that receiving the commandments made them superior to the pagan Gentiles. This became a basis upon which some Jews, and more troubling for Paul, some Jewish Christians uh, boasted of being superior spiritually to the pagan Gentiles. Paul wants Jewish Christians, those of his brothers and sisters who embraced Christ as the Messiah, he wants them not to act superior to Gentile Christians, but really he wants them to see themselves as God's messengers and servants to the Gentile Christians. And as we come to the middle part of his letter, again, he's going to explain to us and them, trying to encourage them to understand exactly why Jesus had to die, and how we then can experience the benefits of his death. He wants us to understand that as apostles of the Gentiles, but with respect to the letter, he really wants Jewish Christians to understand that in his day, so that they could come alongside their their Gentile brothers and sisters and help them to understand. Let's see what he says. Again, we're in the heart of his letter, and over the next Seven or eight weeks, we have great stuff to look at. It's really yeah, wonderful stuff. See what he says, Romans 6, 1 through 14. Begins with a question. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin 
and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul poses a question that might have occurred to you at some time. You might even have asked it or heard somebody asking it. In a place where you're talking about God's grace and forgiveness, the question might be, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? The question is logical in light of what Paul has said. In fact, if the question does not occur, then you're probably not really listening to what Paul is saying. It's He's saying some things that at the time, I and mean, even in our time, seem radical. Um, he said in Romans 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. So what it indicates, again, this would have been startling to them at that time. It's startling today. The law came in so that the trespass might increase. God did not then send the law in order to control transgressions and sin, but in order that they might become more uncontrollable. Um, and he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Oh, and so what people were indicating at the time, oh, okay, great. So if we want to give God a chance to, to grace it up, we should sin it up. And that's the how they followed up on what they heard him saying. And really, Paul's going to address it, but it really is a logical question. In light of what Paul is saying, um, in order to understand the answer, though, we need to understand something. There's, there's one little truth here that if you catch it, and as we catch it, it will allow us to make more sense of what Paul is saying. And that is, and this is the deal, it's, it's about the way Paul views sin. Now, if I ask you, tell me about sin. What we would naturally talk about would be behaviors. Doing what you shouldn't do not doing what you should do. We would talk about this behavior and that behavior, and sin can be behavior, biblically, oftentimes is. Not here. When Paul talks about sin in this passage, sin is not an action. Sin is a power. You might think of it as sin with a capital S and a crown on its head. Sin as a dominating influence, something, well, Something like a slave owner who orders his slaves around. That's the way Paul is describing sin, sin as an enslaving power. Look what he says in in verse 12. Again, we're going to hear this, and he issues, issues some commands. And when you hear the commands, they're going to be, how in the world am I supposed to do that? We're going to go through, and we're going to come back to these commands at the end. 
And I think they might make a little more sense, but look, listen to what these commands say. Let us not, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death, from death to life and your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness. Again, um, believers are not to let sin reign over them. Uh, they are no longer, we are no longer to present our bodies to sin. Uh, sin is no longer to rule over us, rule, reign, present as members. It's not talking about sin as an action. It's talking about sin as a power. As a slave owner, as a slave driver, that's the way it's describing sin. It's, it's a little bit strange for us, but that's, that is what Paul's talking about here. Uh, when Paul talks about sin, he's talking about a ruling power. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 4. We have the same picture here. Listen to what God says to Cain. And again, you know the story. Uh, Cain and Abel offer their offerings to God. God says, I take Abel's. We really don't know why. Cain was the oldest. The name Abel, Abel really is a nothing. That's the word Abel. That's what it means. It's like a puff of air. It's not that we learn a lot about Abel, except that God chose him. And then Cain is wrestling with some frustrated entitlement. He says, I I should have been. My offering was just as good as Abel's. Here's what God says. Look what he says. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, listen to what it says. Sin is crouching. At your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. Sin is crouching at your door like a lion. Once it gets its hooks into you, it's not going to let go. Again, this is not just an action. He doesn't describe sin as something we necessarily choose. Now, it can be that. Here, sin is not something we choose. Sin is something that chooses us. Rules, dominates. That's what Paul is describing here. In Paul's eyes, sin is not merely something we choose. It's something that chooses us. Sin is a slave owner, and we are sin's slave. This is the problem Jesus came to address. Would you agree that before you understand a solution, you have to understand the problem? And that's definitely true with the cross. If we don't understand the problem, then Jesus' solution doesn't make much sense. If we understand the problem, then Jesus' solution, God's solution, makes more sense. Here's the problem Jesus came to deal with. He came to emancipate us from being ruled over by sin. That's why he came. That's why he came. He sees us as being ruled over, dominated, ordered around, 
put in servitude by sin. He comes to break the manacles that will impact the way we act, but that's not the only thing. It's, it's, it's not just talking about what we do. It's talking about kind of being in bondage. That's the sense here. Um, we come face to face with a basic question then. Here's the question. Heard it talked about being saved. What do we need to be saved from? Jesus is the Savior. The Savior from what? Why do we need to be saved? A pretty basic question, isn't it? And if you're, it's not easy to come up with an answer, is it? Um, sin. And that's true. But sin, that's what we find here. Um, look what it says in your worship folder. It's the, um, on the bottom of the, talks about a person needs to be saved when. I read into this somewhere and it made a lot of sense. It was interesting. I like the way it put it. In your worship folder, there, where the text is, right at the bottom of the place where the notes for the morning are, there's a statement. It talks about what it means to be saved. When does a person need to be saved? Here's what it says. A person needs to be saved when they have come under the control of one whose power exceeds their own. Secondly, they have lost the freedom to implement their own will or decisions. That's, it's talking about what, why we need to be saved, coming under the power of someone, the control of someone whose power is greater than our own, being under that person's power. We have lost the ability to um, implement our own will and decisions. And finally, uh, they can only gain their freedom by the intervention of a third party. What's being saved means I cannot rescue myself. I am under the control of something that's more powerful than me. I'm not free to do what I want. I can might have some certain freedoms, but in general, I cannot do what I want. If we talked with slaves during that period in our history, if we asked Slaves on a plantation, are you free to do what you want? What would they say? No. We said, well, you can walk here and there. They're not controlling that. They say, yeah, I can walk here and there, but I can't leave the compound. There are certain freedoms. We think, well, does that mean that sin as a power tells us what to put on? Tells us to turn right or left? No, it's not that specific, but what sin does do, it creates limits. You might have some freedom. We might, if we are dominated by sin, have some liberties, but we can't leave the path that sin lays out for us. That's the image, and that's why men and women, mankind, Needs to be saved, needs a savior. Here's what it indicates then. 
apparently slavery is a reality. This might seem a little bit extreme. The next statement would seem even more extreme. Free will is a fantasy. If someone is ruled over, and we can be ruled over by one of two things, sin as a power or God as a power. Either sin is Lord or God is Lord. That's the way Paul seems to see it. Now, that sounds strange to us. We're used to, we live in a very powerful nation. We're used to our freedoms. But for a first century Jew, the idea of a ruler would have made a lot of sense. They were ruled over by Rome. They hadn't been free. We have some limitations. I love living in this country. I love the freedoms. Relative to understanding some of the stuff in the Bible, though, our freedom creates an obstacle for us. When we think about being lorded over by someone, it's really hard for us to imagine. It wasn't hard for a first century Jew or Jewish Christian to understand. They had been dominated by Babylon, Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, then Rome, and one after another, and they know, they understood what it meant to have somebody lord over them. And that's what we find. Slavery is a reality, and free will is a fantasy. Again, we can make some choices, but what Paul is indicating with respect to the fact that when sin is Lord, free will is a fantasy. You really don't have because sin is a dominating power. Um, under law, sin is Lord. There's an important, in fact, verse 14, one of the most significant verses in the letter, if not the Bible, in terms of just how clear it is, out of this thing comes something which is, so profoundly simple, but clear. Look what it says. It's Paul's making a statement here, telling us something that's true. He's not asking a question. He's not making a suggestion. He's stating a fact. Here's the fact. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Pick that apart. Sin will have, making a promise, no dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. It's a critical verse to understand. Under grace, sin will not have dominion over you. So if you're under grace, are you controlled by sin as a power? Under grace, we are not controlled by sin as a power. Under law, it, oh, it must all depend. Oh, come on. You can't be saying that under law, we're under the dominion of sin. That's exactly what it's saying. So here's the deal. We can be under law, and sin is Lord, or under grace, and God is Lord. That's what Paul's saying. And you know what's funny about this? These are basics. These are things we build Christian faith 
upon. I, I'm not sure why we don't hear it more clearly. Under law, we're sin slaves. There's only one way to escape from being sin slaves. I need to go from being under law to being under grace. That's it. One shot. That's it. I need to go from being under law, which is the default setting, to being under grace. That's what needs to happen. And when that happens... I change owners. Now, does it mean that I stop doing sinful things? Oh, no, that's not really the point. The point is, I am free to learn how to serve God. I'm free to learn how to obey God. Here, I'm not free to obey God because I have another Lord. And this all depends on whether I see myself as being under law, under grace. So how do we, let's, and by the way, under law is conceiving yourself as being under the old covenant. That's the law that it's speaking of. If you believe, and again, all of us, and I'm going to make a statement here. There's an absolute here, but it's, we kind of find ourselves somewhere in between. I think all of us, if we're honest, if we do good things, we believe that we're nearer and dearer to God. He likes us better. How many of us wrestle with that? Of course we do. What Paul is pointing out is something that he wants us to keep in our mind and to continue to think about, and we will think about this week after week after week after week after week. We will come back to this and back to this and back to this because it's critical to keep it in our mind. Our thinking is not going to change overnight. It's not the way it works. Even when a slave is emancipated and is out from under the dominion of a master, does that slave immediately start to think like a free man? No, it takes time. It takes time. Keep coming back. This is not just idle theological speculation. What we're talking about seems to be a make or break thing. And what we're doing is we're walking together towards the direction in which we think about being under grace. Because this is where God is Lord. And again, we're somewhere in between, but this is the direction we're walking in. Um, to be under law is under the new co old covenant. To be under grace is under the new covenant. How do we go from old to new? Um, Paul explains, look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We have to be baptized into Christ. Let me tell you what baptized means. Baptism means identification with. It's speaking of the way first century individuals joined the church. They were baptized. Back then, baptism was something that labeled you. If you were a Jewish Christian, Jew, and you were baptized, you would be either indirectly or directly expelled from the synagogue. You were making a statement. Today, some of the sense associated with baptism, baptism is still important, but it's lost some of its black and whiteness in our culture. Today, when we are baptized, and we'll we'll do it this summer, we will have a meal together. It's like a celebration. Back then, there was a celebration, but there was also, if you were baptized, you committed cultural suicide. It's like coming out from under Social Security. If you wanted Social Security, you need to be part of the synagogue if you're a Jew. That's where you got business. That's where you met with people. So to be baptized was, okay, I'm going to do this. This is going to affect my freedoms for the rest of my life, but I believe that Jesus is Lord, and I'm going in that direction. And so, And it also kind of pushed you into the church, because guess what? If you were baptized and became a Christian, you just lost most of your friends. So what you're going to do, not because, oh, great, I'm going to go to church, but it's, i got to get to church. Because that's the place that I'm going to find some level of support. Um, so baptism, that's the sense, but... Just so you know, here's the image of baptism. What baptize means is to immerse. So let's say if we have a vat of dye. When we take this garment, this white piece of fabric, and there's a vat of, let's say, purple dye. When we take this garment and put it into, we are baptizing the garment into the dye. That's what baptize means, to immerse. Now, here's what's interesting. When you baptize, what's true of the substance becomes true of what you dip into the substance. So, this shirt is white. The dye is purple. When I baptize the garment into the dye, What's true of the dye becomes true of the cloth, and I pull the cloth out, it was white, and now it's purple. Jesus died. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead. The one who is baptized into Christ, identified with Christ. Christ's death becomes the person who is baptized into Christ, shares the death, shares the burial, shares the resurrection. You say, okay, so what? So what? Look what it says in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. When it talks about old self, it's not talking about you when you used to smoke, drink, and chew and go with girls who do. That's not what it's describing. 
old self and new self. The old self is who we are in Adam. Adam is our head. His, it's like we're baptized into Adam. Adam veered from the course, and guess what? His choice has a direct bearing on us. We're baptized into Adam. That's our old self. And what it indicates here, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Again, sin is a ruler. For what, listen, one who has died, one who has died has been set free from what does it say? One who has died has been set free from sin. Oh. Oh. So Jesus was crucified and died and raised. And so since he died, he died. Now, he never sinned, but to the power, his death broke Sin, because one who has died has been free from the control of sin. Oh, hey, how about this? How about this then? How about if we are baptized into Christ? What's true of Jesus becomes true of us. What if we become identified with his death? His death becomes our death. His burial becomes our burial. His resurrection becomes... Does that mean what, you th- what I think it means? If his death applies to me, does that mean I die too? Sin? Does it mean sin's no longer my ruler? Is that what it means? That's exactly what it means. That's why he died. To break the power. It doesn't mean that we don't do acts sometime. What it means is that we serve a different person. We serve a different Lord. And you know what we're supposed to do? Think about it. And believe it. Think about it. Make room for it. Because the more we understand it, the more we understand, we're going to be in a really good spot a hundred years from now. And understanding that affects the way we live now. We do wrong things. But through faith in Christ, we're no longer under law, we're under grace. Do you understand why this is not just some flitty kind of theology? Kind of just... This is unbelievably practical relative to... Now again, all of us, you say, Mike, I kind of get it, but I kind of don't. I, I get it. We're going to keep on talking about this. We do. We'll come back to it and back to it and back to it. Some will say, oh, yeah, that grace, yeah, that grace stuff. Yeah, what about sin? What about sin? How do we, how do we break the power of sin? We try real hard, right? Right? No, come on. Got to try hard. Got to really grit our teeth and, yeah, that'll do it, right? No, it won't. There's only one way you can die to sin, is die to sin. And there's, there's an article, and I'm not going to read it, um, but 
the article might be helpful. You know how you get free from sin? One of two ways. Both involve death. By a coffin or by a cross. You can die to sin by being in a coffin or by being joined with Christ, baptized, and so his death, his crucifixion applies to you. And that works too. Praise God for that. AMG. Mm. Mm. In order to die to sin, we must die with Christ and come out from under the jurisdiction of old covenant law. This is what God wants us to believe. Um, and you know what? Interestingly enough, this is basic. These are basics. And I'm not, I'm not, I just, but these are what we're supposed to understand. Yeah, and under, under law, sin is Lord. Under grace, God is Lord. So, under law, well really, slavery is a reality. We can be slaves to sin or slaves to God. I know what one I'd rather have. Okay. Slavery is a reality. Free will is a fantasy. Freedom is a possibility. Say, how does that work? Well, it says, verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In verse 11, Paul gives us three commands. We looked at them in the beginning. We're going to do the commands, and then we're just about done. And we'll experience communion. Communion works really well today in terms of what we're doing. Here's what it says. You must, verse 11, and again we find three commands. Okay, Mike, what should we do with this? Okay, three commands. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean sin has no power over me, sin has no power over me, sin has no power over me. Sin has no power. It's not trying to talk yourself into something. You know what it means to be dead to sin? I am not under the old covenant. I'm not under the, because sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. Under law, if you believe that God loves you when you obey the commandments and he hates you when you don't, and again, all of us phase in and out. I'm not pointing a big finger at you. We phase in and out of it because we hear it all the time. There's so much confusion. What it means, though, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. You know what that means? You're no longer under the old covenant. He's not counting. The new covenant is, he is Helios to your unrighteousnesses and remembers your sins no more. That's the truth. That's what happens. That's what it means to consider yourself dead to sin. Do you understand that? It's not unresponsive. You're no longer under Law. That's what it means to consider yourselves dead to sin. Does that make sense? Again, you say, eh, kind of might, kind of not. But that is what it's saying. When God looks at you through faith in Christ, when you understand why Christ died, 
The old covenant does not apply to you. God is not counting your sin. Oh, Mike, I'll tell you what, Mike, if I believe that, if you believe that, what? You'd be a Christian. And the fear of judgment would dissipate. You'd find yourself, get this, developing a relationship with one who loved you because you know he's not judging. The lack of judgment feels dangerous to some. It's the way to life. We didn't make this up. He did. So all we do, we go with what he gave us, and this is what he gave us. Consider yourselves dead dead to sin. Let not, therefore... Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body so that you obey its passions. To obey means to underlisten. How can you turn down the volume of sin as Lord? Go under grace. I'm going to give you, and I've talked with this before, I'm going to give you a very practical way to do this. When you commit a sinful act, this is what I want you to remember. We've talked about this. I want you to remember four things. Some of you are thinking, eh, I think I might remember one of them, Mike. Remember these. Four things. When you sin, and you do that thing you shouldn't do, the thing that makes you feel that God's your enemy, when you have those feelings, I want you to remember four things. You're still in me. You're still with me. Good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. The new covenant says God is Helios, non-reactive to your unrighteousnesses, and he will remember your sins no more. You know what we need to do? We need to believe it because that's what being under grace means. And this is where sin is no longer Lord God is. We we have to try to remember this. There's four things. And so when you say, this is what I want you to do. I want you to think about these. When you do that thing, when you say that word, when you do that act, when you look at that thing online, okay, remember four things. God, what I heard, I heard this, and I guess it's true because Jesus can't, because of the new covenant, you're still in me. I did this thing, but you didn't change your attitude towards me. You're still in me. And he said, well, you're still me, and you're still with me. I'm not going to walk alone. You're not withdrawing. You're still in me. You're still with me. Good's still ahead of me. I did not sacrifice anything by what I did. I can't understand. But you said that's true. Good's still ahead of me, and it's guaranteed because Jesus died so that I would know it's true. Could you remember those four things? I encourage you, when you're aware that you've sinned, I encourage you to think about it. Why, Mike? Why? Why should I do that? Because that will help you not go here. It will help you not go under law. And this is a problem. Because under law is Lord. Sin is Lord. Get out from under law. 
We didn't make this up. Paul is not being unclear here. Get back under grace. Here's where God is Lord. Here's where righteousness reigns. And it's not going to change your life overnight. But give it time. Give it time. It's guaranteed. That's why Jesus... Sin will not have dominion over you. Because you're not under law but under grace. Sin will not have dominion over you. Under grace. This is a great letter. He just says things in such a way here. We're just, we're breathing in rare air. It just comes from above. It just is. When you hear it, it's, do you find yourself doing what I do? I, I catch a glimpse of something and it's, and I can catch it and it's, it's not fully in my head yet, but it's in more than it used to be. You, do you understand that? That's the way it works. It's the way it works. Uh, so what I'm saying is, keep coming back. Keep coming back. Because it's, we have to keep on hearing about it. Uh, communion really works. Because what we celebrate with communion, and again, it's only back there. Um, knew there'd be fewer folks, so I, I led the charge over there, and there was no communion stuff there. So That's under law. Anybody wants to be under law, go out that door. Okay. There's nothing there. There's only mud in the streets. Then, Okay, shut up. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> there's the elements in the back. When you take the uh, take the bread and you take the cup, you're remembering the new covenant. I want you to think of those four statements. Can you remember those four statements? The ones that I want you to remember and I want you to say, I think I want us to say. Do you remember them? Okay. That's why I want you to think about it because this table is why that's true. This is where the new covenant is inaugurated. That's why Jesus died, and those things are true. Um, we can celebrate the new covenant, which emancipates us from being held captive by sin. Uh, so we're going to have some music, grab the elements, and anybody, yeah, and then sit back to your seat. I'm not going to tell you when to take the elements. Take them, but think about those four statements. Father, thank you for the plan of eternal life and thanks for salvation. Salvation is about coming under the control of one whose power exceeds our own, thereby losing our power to implement our will and decisions, needing the intervention of a third party, and that is you. You are the Savior. You save us from being ruled over by sin. Under sin's power, we either go in the direction of unrighteousness or self-righteousness, both of them, either one. And neither of them is what you do. You, When we go under your lordship, you teach us to be righteous. And that's a gradual process. But you move us away from unrighteousness and from self-righteousness, which is a little bit more difficult to deal with. It's the sin that your son couldn't crack with. Anyways, we ask that you would continue to allow us to understand who we are in Christ, what happened to us because of him, through our faith in him, so that we might come out from under law, under grace, where you are, Lord. 
Um, thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, it's going to be a little bit easier if you recall. Uh, if you leave here, take a right. It's a little bit easier to go south. Remember the yeehaw thing. Okay, you mutters. Leave some room with the guy in front. Okay. Be careful.